Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's a soul anchor. Hold on to the hope it is us. Hello. This is the Soul Anchor Podcast, and I'm your host, Vidal Moreno. In the Soul Anchor Podcast, we seek to anchor our faith in the truths of the Bible while we sail across the sea seeking adventures where they can be found. This is part 43 of the no-name heroes of the faith. These are the men and women who God used in small, quiet ways to help bring big things to reality. These stories are gleaned from the pages of Christian History Magazine. CHM is a quarterly periodical, and if you've enjoyed my Christian history podcasts, you're going to love this magazine. I will place their website in my show notes. You can even download all their back issues for free. It's Christmas time. Family get-togethers, Advent calendars, Christmas Eve services, and Salvation Army Christmas bell ringers. Who are these people? What is the Salvation Army? Who started it? Curious? Want to find out? Issue 26 of CHM is devoted to William and Catherine Booth, the bold and fiery founders of the Salvation Army, an organization that boasts over 2 million people. The article I'm going to read is by Nelson Murdoch, and it is called The General and the Army's Mother. First up, The General. Few would deny William Booth the title, The Prophet of the Poor. He is best known today as founder and first general of the Salvation Army, an organization that exists to bring a better life to the poor through both social and spiritual salvation. Yet, Booth did not come to this high appellation by a direct route. He was not to the manor born. Rather, he was born in relative poverty in Snayton, a Nottingham, England suburb, on April 10, 1829. One biographer described William's father, Samuel, as an illiterate, speculative builder. His mother, Mary Moss Booth, was Samuel's second wife. The Booths were, at best, laboring class with little education. His father, a grab-a-get, by William's definition, died when William was just 14. By that time, William was helping to earn the family's income by working as a pawnbroker's apprentice. Mrs. Booth ran a small shop in poor Nottingham district where she sold household wares. After his father's death, a Wesleyan couple invited William to attend chapel. William's family had not been religious, although they had had William baptized at the Snayton Parish Church, which was Anglican, two days after his birth. William's conversion at age 15 cannot be fixed in time or place. Various biographers describe it as coming in the streets of Nottingham, in the Broad Street Wesleyan Chapel, where evangelist 
Isaac Marsden was leading a revival or in a small prayer meeting. William did not recall a long siege of conviction after he made a profit in a transaction with a friend. He remembered the relief he felt when his guilt was removed. Soon after his conversion, William had another life-changing experience. Hearing American revivalist James Coffey, who led a remarkable religious awakening at Nottingham's Wesleyan Chapel, the rush of souls to hear the gospel led Booth to see that soul-saving results may be calculated upon when proper means are used for their accomplishment. Booth went on to make a lifelong commitment to the scientific revivalism methods of Charles G. Finney. With Coffee's example fresh in mind, Booth and a group of friends set out to evangelize the poor of Meadow Platts. They held nightly open-air addresses, after which they invited people to meetings in cottages. Their use of lively songs, short exhortations, calling for a decision for Christ, visitation of the sick and converts, whose names and addresses they recorded, all anticipated methods Booth would write into the Salvation Army's orders and regulations 30 years later. During his adolescent lay evangelism among Nottingham's poor, Booth grew frustrated by the local clergy's faint devotion to revivalism. Then his pastor proposed that William himself prepare for ordained ministry. William accepted official recognition by Wesleyanism. However, Booth fell ill, and his chapel's lack of concern for his welfare left him feeling scorned. In 1850, through a misunderstanding, Wesleyan Methodists labeled him a reformer and took away his class ticket membership, in other words. Booth then became a pastor to reform Methodists in Spalding, though their disorganized ways repelled him. In this period of despondency, William met Catherine Mumford. Beginning with their second meeting on Good Friday, April 9th, 1852, William and Catherine entered one of the most remarkable man-woman relationships in religious history. They married in a South London congregational chapel on June 16, 1855. When Catherine began preaching five years later, they became an evangelistic partnership of true equality. In the 1870s, they began requiring all couples involved in the Christian mission and East London mission, their first enterprise, to recognize the dual nature of husband-wife ministry. Their commitment to female ministry ultimately caused the Salvation Army to discontinue. In 1883, its practice of the sacraments, because laypersons refused to accept them as practiced by women officers. In 1854, William was ordained in the Methodist New Connection. By 1861, he found that settled ministry, quote-unquote, did not suit him, and he resigned. He and Catherine became itinerant evangelists in Wales, Cornwall, and the Midlands, Britain's burned-over district. Booth had seen no career for himself in urban evangelism when he left the New Connection. 
But an invitation for Catherine to preach in London in 1865 led him to accept support from lay-run East London missions as a temporary solution to his vocational quandary. He soon organized his own East London Christian mission, which by 1870 resembled a Methodist society. His mission failed to attract the heathen masses, however. So in 1878, he energized it by giving it the name Salvation Army, an idea he borrowed from the successful British volunteer movement in which thousands of working-class men found that civilian soldiering during their leisure hours gave them new status. The Salvation Army struggled to win converts in London's East End and other urban areas in which Irish mobs attacked Wesleyan intruders into their neighborhoods. So Booth again found a popular idea that solved his problems. Women Salvationists working in the slums since 1883 convinced him that the reform activities would save sinners from a heathen urban environment and breathe new life into his missions. Booth agreed, which ultimately led him to become both the leader of a worldwide evangelistic mission and a renowned social reformer. At the time of his death on August 20, 1912, the Salvation Army had become a family-run Christian empire with seven of the Booth's eight children one daughter was retarded, taking leadership positions. Four of these were women, and one, Evangeline, became the Army's fourth general in 1934. William Booth bequeathed to his son, Bramwell, the generalship of the Salvation Army, a religious and social service organization whose 15,945 officers occupied 58 countries and colonies. Today, following the pattern established by the First General, the Salvation Army marches on with over 25,000 officers in 91 countries. And that was as of 1990. So our next parallel article is The Army Mother, also written by Norman Murdoch. You either respect or dislike Catherine Mumford Booth, the sweet, diminutive, but strong-minded wife of Salvation Army's founder, William Booth. In intellect, she far excelled her husband's modest gifts. In preaching, she exceeded his powers of persuasion. Constance M. Coltman may have overstated the case when she wrote, it was she who turned an energetic, rather vulgar, but simple-minded dyspeptic into one of the great religious leaders of the world, end quote. Catherine was born in Derbyshire in 1829 to Methodist parents. Her father was an occasional lay preacher and carriage maker. Her mother was a devout woman who, after her father's fall from grace to alcoholism, lived a lonely life with Catherine as her only solace. Except for a brief period in a girls' school in Boston, England, Catherine learned to read, count, and analyze at home. Her biographers speak of her prodigious reading of the Bible, theology, and history. The Mumfords moved to Brixton 
in South London in 1844. When Catherine refused to condemn Methodist reformers in 1850, the Wesleyans expelled her. For the reformers, she led a girls' Sunday school class in Clapham. At the home of Edward Rabbits in 1851, she met William Booth, who also had been expelled by the Wesleyans for Reformed sympathies. William was reciting a temperance poem, The Grog Seller's Dream, which appealed to Catherine, who had embraced the new Methodist passion for abstinence. Even as a young girl, she had served as secretary of the Juvenile Temperance Society. On his 23rd birthday, William took Catherine home after a service, and a love affair began between these apparently mismatched couple. They did not marry until 1855 because of William's bumpy career. But in these years, through correspondence with her itinerant revivalist fiancé, Catherine began to mold William to her beliefs for women's ministry and against his occasional use of ale for a dyspeptic stomach. William, now ordained by the Methodist New Connection, spent three years as an evangelist before the conference appointed him to a settled ministry in 1857. Catherine played the role of the parson's wife, teaching classes of children and meeting with women's societies. But the role did not suit her. She saw no reason why a woman's ministry should not equal that of her husband. During this period, she discovered a model, American Wesleyan revivalist Phoebe Palmer. With William's encouragement, Catherine wrote a pamphlet entitled Female Ministry, Woman's Right to Preach the Gospel, in defense of Mrs. Palmer's preaching. She complained that the unjustifiable application of Paul's advice Quote, let your women keep silence in the churches, end quote, has resulted in more loss to the church, evil to the world, and dishonor to God than any of its errors. In January 1860, following the birth of their fourth child, she followed her own advice. At Gates End, during William's sermon, she asked to say a word. She witnessed to her timidity about claiming her calling, yet William announced that she would speak that night. She became a partner in her husband's work and soon found her own sphere as a powerful preacher. Many agree that no man of her era, including her husband, exceeded her in popularity or spiritual results. When the 1861 conference assigned William to another circuit, he resigned his new connection ministry. He wanted to do evangelistic work. The Booths preached revivals in Cornwall and Wales in 1861 and 62, but soon Catherine had her own itinerary. By 1864, her preaching was more valued than his. At one point, a publisher asked to print her sermons. She said, she had not written them out. Was she simply avoiding wounding her husband's ego? The Booths decided to move to London, where she could depend on her mother to assist in the care of their growing family of six children. While William preached in his East End mission, she preached in the affluent West End churches and at summer resorts. She was the family breadwinner. He had no income apart from the gifts collected by Catherine from wealthy patrons. She disliked having to write 
begging letters, but William's work could not exist apart from her ministry among the rich. Catherine's role in the Christian Mission and Salvation Army is not easily described. She had no title apart from the honorific ones that entitled her to sit in Christian Mission conferences and her Army Mother appellation. Never did she accept a rank. She was Mrs. Booth, or occasionally Mrs. General Booth. When she and William were at home, there was no head of the table. They sat side by side. When they appeared on platforms, they shared the spotlight. But on his mission ground, she deferred to him. Besides the nurturing of their eight children, seven of whom became army leaders, Catherine's unique contribution to the Salvation Army was her recruitment of a much larger group of women from the working class. This surplus womanhood, as Josephine Butler described them, many from small towns and often only teenagers, spread the army around the world by 1890. Writer Evelyn L. Pugh observed that the women's suffrage movement had to be a ladies' movement before it could become a mass movement. But Catherine Booth began her movement for female ministry with masses of working-class women. After she recruited them, she trained them, with the help of her daughters, in three to six months in practical evangelism, basic management, and elementary literacy. Women continue to make up a majority of the Army's 25,000 officers, and its present general is a woman. To the Salvation Army, Catherine was the theologian as well as the advocate of women's ministry. In theology, she and William were thoroughly Wesleyan, and thus more inclined to write a discipline, such as the orders and regulations in army parlance, than doctrinal treatises. Her books fostered the army's emphasis on holiness and instructed officers in Christian living. She also addressed practical external concerns. In her book, Church and State, authored in 1883, Moreover, Catherine established the Army's position on the sacraments. After 1883, Salvationists no longer practiced baptism or communion in their halls. Some have held that the prohibition was to protect converted alcoholics from the taste of juice. It is more likely that it had to do with female ministry, the unwillingness of worshippers to accept the sacrament from a woman. The Army's periodical, The War Cry, gives no instance in which a woman presided at a sacramental service. Catherine encouraged the Army in evangelism. In the 1840s, long before they met, Catherine and William had embraced Charles Finney's theology of conversion, discussed in the Lectures of Revivalism. Sometimes called the American Method, it used scientific means to achieve soul-saving ends. In her first book, Aggressive Christianity, published in 1880, Catherine outlined the means by which God saves. She referred to Finney as her guide for revival techniques, invitation for sinners to make a public confession of faith, lay, including female, participation in prayer and public witnessing, door-to-door visitation to spread the gospel, preaching in places where sinners were most likely to be found, like public theaters, music halls, and streets. Revival came by prayer and intelligent preparation.
Catherine, with all her labors as a mother of eight, evangelist, breadwinner, confidant to her husband, promoter of women's rights, and moral crusader, wore herself out. She sometimes complained that she could not do everything expected of her. She had her own remedies for her illnesses. For example, hydropathy, cold water treatments that allowed the body to recover on its own without interference of drugs. She even made this Salvation Army teaching. Just as William published his book In Darkest England and the Way Out, his social reform plan, Catherine was dying of cancer. She endorsed the scheme, but warned, Praise up humanitarianism as much as you like, but don't confound it with Christianity, nor suppose that it will ultimately lead its followers to Christ. Following her death on October 4, 1890, 27,000 people viewed her body at Clapham Hall before it was moved to Olympia for a large funeral service. We go through our Christian lives here in the West with so little knowledge of the wonderful saints that have gone before us. Were they perfect? No. But I can relate to them, and that makes me admire them even more. Have a wonderful Christmas time as we celebrate the birth of our Savior. If you're enjoying the Soul Anchor podcast and would like to automatically receive the podcast every time I upload an episode, make sure you hit the subscribe button. Soul Anchor Podcast is also on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. The Soul Anchor Podcast Facebook page has the complete transcript of this episode. Like the page so that you can receive notifications when I post information about these episodes. I invite all my listeners to message me on Facebook or email me at vidmore at yahoo.com. I would love to hear from you. I get very little feedback, and I would love to get some feedback, positive or negative. Getting back to the podcast, if you're enjoying the podcast, tell others about it and leave a five-star review, because that will allow the podcast to get more recognition in the community. Till we meet again. It's a soul anchor. Hold on to the hope it is a soul It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.